0: Hi, this is Jonathan McKinstry, the head coach of the Uganda man's national team and you're listening to the bola bola show.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome again to the bola bola show. It's me Alwin and it's been a truly a pleasure and joy to be part of this show with my two buddies, Bala and Sivan and on behalf of our bola bola team, I would like to thank each and every one of our listeners out there for their subscriptions and also the support and encouragement that you guys have given to us on email so please do keep those emails coming uh, at info at bola bola dot my. and as for today we have another interesting episode guys but before that let me bring in my two buddies firstly Bala how's it going
2: hi Elvin how are you doing I'm doing well uh, things are getting better um, it's, it's good to be back again after in the Bola Bola show it's been uh, two to four weeks we took uh, a kind of break. I'm glad and uh, looking forward to for this show because it's a very special show, isn't it, Stephen?
3: Yep, it is another special show and of course, uh, good to be back again on the Bola Bola Show podcast. So, without further ado, Bala, why don't we bring our guests in?
2: Alright, okay. So, uh, today is going to be a special show because uh, we're having a special person. Uh, he's uh, currently the National Head Coach of Uganda and uh, his name is Mr. Jonathan McEntree. Mr. Jonathan, welcome to our show.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, guys. It's uh, it's great to join you. Um, You know, thank you for having me on, and yeah, looking forward to an interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. All right. Just
2: for our fans and also to listeners, perhaps you can maybe can introduce yourself with your uh, what's the current role and what are you doing currently.
0: Yeah, so um, as you've just said, um am Jonathan McKinstry and I'm the current head coach of the Uganda men's national team, uh, also responsible for our under-23 Olympic team. And I've been in this role now since September of last year, so we're sort of approaching one year in the position. And and yeah, this is my third international position in Africa. Uh, prior Prior to that was with the Sierra Leone and the Rwandan national teams as well as some club positions in both Europe and Asia. So, you know, it's, it's another step along the journey. But yeah, here in Uganda for the last year and, you know, hopefully for many more years to come.
3: Mm-hmm. Of course, your career as a football coach is well documented. But perhaps you might want to share a little bit about your playing chapter.
0: Yeah, um, you know, of all the questions, this probably one has one of the shorter answers uh, because (laughs) it was really quite a short playing career. Um, I think I would, Growing up in Northern Ireland, um, we don't have a professional league in Northern Ireland. We have a semi-professional league. So even if you make it to the top of the game domestically back at home, you still sort of need to support yourself in another way. Um, for those players who want to go professional from Northern Ireland, they really, at the age of 16, 17, have to be good enough to make the jump over to England or Scotland. To join either a Premier League or championship team usually who would have the finance. And um, really for me at the age of 16, 17, you know, I knew that I wasn't quite at that level, that you know, my route would have to be more of a semi-professional one if I wanted it, and that maybe the pro game as a player was, you know, one or two steps beyond me. But um, you know, for me it was very much I felt it was one of those things that I felt I could understand the game and I could conceptualize it in a way in my head that maybe I just wasn't technically quite at the level to execute. But I I always felt I had an understanding for the game, maybe in advance of some of my teammates. And so when that realization dawned on me that I wasn't going to be a pro player, then I thought, well, how can can I remain involved in this game? You know, how can I make this a career? And you've got to remember back then – you're sort of talking, you know, this is, you know, the mid-2000s, maybe, and you're talking that you didn't have Jose Mourinho yet. There wasn't really, you know, Jose was obviously one of the first of the modern era of what you would term career coaches who hadn't been a top player. And since Jose has come on the scene, there obviously has been numerous ones, Village Boash, Brendan Rodgers, you know, there's been many. Uh, Graham Potter, to a degree now with um, with Brighton, but back then there wasn't examples. So for me, it was sort of you know searching in the dark a little bit to see you know what was possible, and and really it's it's just been sort of step by step since then. You know that was what 17, 18 years ago now, and um, and yeah, it's really just been a step by step process ever since in the world of professional coaching.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, rather than you giving up playing and maybe going back as a common people, like example, like an engineer or a doctor or anything like that, but uh, what actually made you prompted basically to continue career in the football and uh, you went to coaching in such an early age, what is your motivating factor or, or perhaps
0: or what, what made you to do that actually? Um, Well, I think the initial steps were simply, you know, this was a game that I couldn't get enough of. Um, You know, if you ask my, you know, I don't come from a football family. You know, my brothers played rugby, my uh, father's involved in motorsport. And, you know, my immediate family was not football. But the game really sort of it grabbed me from a young age, from sort of six, seven, eight years of age, and it, it was just everything to me. And so the ability to stay involved and be involved in it was obviously a huge motivating factor. And um, I think another side of it is, for me, I'm very much a people person. You know, I like working with other people. I like, you know, trying to solve problems and, and trying to help people improve. You know, I always say, you know, my my business, what I do day to day is helping other people maximize their talent, their potential. I just happened to be a football coach, you know, but I think if I hadn't have got involved in football, I would have been involved in in some industry that was working directly with people and trying to help them realize their ambitions. So, um, you know, football just happened to be the thing for me. And so that was probably the initial steps. I think a secondary step that was probably very important um, in the grand scheme was a meeting with a careers advisor when i was maybe 16 17 years of age who basically told me that the ambition to be a pro football coach if i hadn't been a pro football player was unrealistic and that it wasn't possible to do and um, maybe it's just my upbringing or the you know the environment i came up in but you know when you're told that you can't do something um, you get double motivation to go and do it and to prove people that it is possible and and so you know whilst that meeting was about somebody you know telling me what wasn't possible actually what it did for me was almost set a challenge um and and that sort of set me out on the road of saying well no i think it is possible and i'm going to prove you and anyone else who doubts me wrong how about your family
2: supporting this matter
0: maybe family and friends would they encourage you Um, Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, again, going back to a period where there was no examples to point to of, you know, people who'd reached the top of the game um, being, you know, without a pro playing background, naturally, there was caution. Um, I think there was probably one or two moments where my family were like, okay, pursue that, but maybe have a second option as well. Um, but for me, I'm very much all or nothing. You know, if, if I have something that I even now, if I have a project that I'm working on, it gets a hundred percent of me. Um, and you know, I put all of my energy and intensity into it to try and make sure we can make a success of it. So whilst and look, I, I can understand that sort of balance of things, you know, you know, have a few options, but definitely I think when my parents saw that I was, you know, this was what motivated me and it was you know even as a young coach as a 16 17 year old you know i was you know getting out of bed at 6 a.m on a sunday morning to go and coach you know eight year olds in at the local rugby club where we had a little mini soccer thing and i'm not sure how many 17 year olds are doing that um Mm -hmm. so i think that they saw that it was something that you know was hugely motivating for me and i think when any parent sees that you know, they're fully supportive of it. And, and I think because of that support, I've been able to take, you know, I've been able to take risks because, you know, if you know that you've got a supportive network around you and behind you and almost a safety net, then you're willing to take extra risks because you know, if you do stumble, then you've got those people around to sort of help pick you up and, and help get you going again.
1: All right. Fantastic. So, uh, Jonathan, you know, uh, when it comes to African teams, you know, despite their enormous talent and potential, you know, and especially with their physique and their skills that they have, you know, they they do very well at the younger age categories, you know, like the Olympics, the under-17 or even the under-20s where Nigeria, Cameroon and Ghana have been successful. But, you know, why do you think when it comes to the senior game, you know, there is a struggle to replicate this similar success?
0: Um, I think there's a few reasons. Um, I think, firstly, in the African context, I think a lot of the associations place huge value on tangible success at those youth tournaments. You know, success in those youth tournaments is, you know, winning the Under-17 World Cup or winning the Under-20 World Cup. Whereas if you look at the, maybe the top, Top footballing nations in the world, the likes of Brazil, Argentina, Spain—you know, whoever it happens to be from around the world—success mm-hmm. at youth level is yes, they like to win the tournaments, but it's not the barometer upon which they'll judge success. Um, their success is how many players do they promote into the senior team? So, for example, if you look at the England youth national teams that have done very well in recent years, and you look at the players that are in those teams, the likes of Phil Foden, the likes of Jaden Sancho, you know, there's numerous players, but they're not necessarily, you know, the biggest, they're not necessarily the strongest, um, but they've been put into those teams because they realize their long-term potential is to be one of the top players in the world, potentially. Whereas I sometimes think even at domestic level in the African context, you see players who maybe are less slightly less talented, but physically they're more developed they are you know so the reason they're successful at u seventeen level is because physically they're more developed than everybody else on the field, and yes, that will bring you success you know in the short term because you might be able to use those physical advantages to maybe out you know, maneuver or bully, to use a different word, Um, other teams Mm -hmm. at those tournaments. But in the long term, you know, it isn't physique that wins you a men's World Cup or a women's World Cup. It's, It's technical, you know, ability and tactical awareness. And, you know, I think you only need to look at, for example, let's take Egypt for an example in Africa of someone who maybe doesn't do it the way a lot of other African countries. You know, at youth level, I think at U17 and U20 level, Egypt have, I think, only got to the semi-finals of the African Cup of Nations like two or three times in their whole history. Yet at senior level, Egypt have won the African Cup of Nations, you know, I think it's seven times. So why do they not have any success at the junior levels, yet they are the most successful nation in Africa at the senior level? And it's because their approach to youth development is geared towards producing players for the, the senior team and not about winning the junior tournaments.
1: Mm. So, so, so what you're trying to say here is for those junior tournaments, just by being strong and physical can actually get you, get you far.
0: I think it can. I I think look. Ultimately, some having a blend of these things. You know, if you have a team of of all very small and slight players, you might struggle as well. But Mm -hmm. it's about having a balance. But definitely, you know, if you look at those junior national teams, a lot of the African teams that have done very well, it's you know, there's a physical component uh, combined with speed that really, you know, helps them excel. And then when you get to the senior level, all of that sort of equaled itself out. You know, Mm -hmm. the South American teams, the European teams, the African teams. Asia's maybe a little bit different because sort of the body type of a lot of Asian national teams, especially in East Asia, is a little Mm -hmm. bit smaller. But by and large, at the top level of the game, everybody's, you know, matured by that stage, they're big and strong. And so that advantage disappears when you get to the senior game because everyone's caught up with you. And, and so if you've put so much reliance on those factors at the expense of maybe tactical development, mm-hmm. then it, it eventually becomes an issue for you.
1: Okay.
2: Okay. I think uh, every interesting insight you gave us uh, but at the age of twenty eight uh, you were the youngest international head coach when you took over Serena Leone uh, national team job. Uh, would you like to go through with us on the experience and uh, how actually you got the job and what actually made you to do that offer?
0: Yeah, um, it was a fantastic experience first and foremost, you know I think, everybody when they take their first steps in the professional game you know there's so many challenges it doesn't matter whether it's with an african national team or a club team in any part of the world i think that first position is one that you know you're learning on the job they always say in football you're learning on the job there's no qualification you can do that trains you to be a first team manager or head coach you can get certain skills through various badges but The job itself is very unique and until you've done it, it's hard to really quantify what it's all about. Um, The Sierra Leone job, look, and I'm open enough to say it was very much a case of right time, right place. You know, I was 27 years old. I was running the only sort of professional football academy in Sierra Leone, it was a privately run academy. I'd been in the country for for three years. Um, it was a fully residential, you know, boarding, school, football academy. And we had the top young players between the ages of 12 and 18 at our facility. And so I knew the country very well. I knew the culture very well. I could speak the language. And with three games of the, um, the World Cup qualifiers um, still remaining, uh, the previous coach of Sierra Leone sort of stepped away. Um, a Swedish coach decided, you know, that was time for him. There was only three games remaining. The chances of qualifying were slim, but still did exist. And, and yeah, because there was only three games remaining, uh, it became apparent within Sierra Leone and just within football circles that the, the federation were probably going to make a short-term appointment and that rather than bringing in an overseas foreign coach, they would go for a domestic coach. Now, the moment they said they were going to go for a domestic coach, I thought to myself, well, look, you know, I was a UFAA license coach. I was working with the best young players in the country. I knew the, the league and the national team very well after three years of watching them. And I just sort of said, right, let's make some phone calls, let's get in the room with the decision makers. So we organized a meeting jointly with the Football Federation and the Ministry of Sport. And I went in and I presented two things to them. One was a dossier on how we could um, improve Sierra Leonean football over the next sort of three to five years. And another one was about our upcoming game against Tunisia that um, Sierra Leone needed to win to remain in the race for the World Cup. And it was basically you know, a blow-by-blow a, a blow account of how we could win that game. And, yeah, we went in and we presented, or I presented, and uh, three days later, they called and offered me the job, uh, initially on a three-game basis that I would cover the remaining World Cup games, and then um, that we would review it to see if, if I'd done enough to stay on for the next African Cup of Nations sort of qualifying series. And, yeah, so it... I think I was confident that I would go in and I would probably, you know, I, I felt I was the most qualified coach based in Sierra Leone at the time. So I was confident going into the room. I knew what I would do with the team. and um, But I'm also not naive enough to think that if I'd made that application whilst living in London or living in mm. New York or somewhere else that I would have got the job. No, it would have cost the Federation too much. They would have had to pay for visas, flights, hotel, everything on top of the salary. But the fact that I walked into the room and the only thing they had to consider was the salary itself in terms of what I needed to do the job, I think it made it easier for them to say yes. And so definitely a case of right time, right place. Um, but you know, we went in, we got the job, and I think over the next 18, 19 months, we did a good job. Um, we made solid progress with the team. It was progress I felt was cut short a bit, um, but... Definitely, you know, it was a hugely enjoyable experience. The quality of the players we had was top level. You know, we had guys playing for AC Milan, for Norwich, for Celtic. Um, we had guys in Sweden and in America. It was, it was a really top level squad. So mm-hmm. in terms of a first opportunity in the game, um, you know, I consider myself very fortunate to have been given that opportunity at such a young age.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, and what was it like, you know, at such a young age, you're standing in the dugout area, facing far more experienced coaches?
0: Um, It was exciting. Look, for me, and even now, I think any coach will tell you that as they're coming up through the game, yes, you are professional yourself and you have your own achievements and objectives. But when you come up against, you know, the historically top coaches, um. You know, so if, if you're a coach, you know, coaching in, you know, the championship or League One in England and, and you come up in the FA Cup against a Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp, you know, those are, those are great moments. Not for any sort of starstruckness or fandom, but it's a great moment to test yourself against these coaches, you know how does your team and your approach to the game stack up against somebody who's been there and done that? You know, you look at Sierra Leone, we, in one of my final games, we traveled to the Ivory Coast, um, to Abidjan, to play not just against the Ivory Coast, but also their, their coach, Herb Renard, who only two years earlier had won the African Cup of Nations with Zambia. So not only are you playing against a top team, with top players, but also a top coach. And and when you go into those games, it, it it's a nice test to see, right, where do I fit in in this sort of hierarchy of football? And how do you te- – and, you know, can we cause, you know, people who've been there and done that problem? So, you know, for me – but, that you know, that's the same, as I said. You know, if you talk to any coach and when he's coming up against some of the top, top teams and managers in the world, it's it's a great challenge to – gauge your own progress
1: and uh and mentioning about big name coaches so was herv renard the the biggest coach you faced or was there any other bigger names that, that you faced during your oh. time here yeah
0: oh no like i've been quite fortunate to go up against a lot of people um and think Avram grant was the head coach of ghana uh, alice and a senegalese team mm. um well. you know there's there's plenty along the way, you know, it's, but we're all colleagues. And the thing about it is, you know, everybody, you know, is very, I think once, you know, once the full-time whistle goes, you know, between the 90 minutes you're doing your job and you're doing everything to try and get your team to win. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, before the whistle, after the whistle, you know, everyone, we're all in the same, we're all in the same industry. We're all trying to do the same thing and we're all very supportive of each other. So, you know, And those are great, even though sometimes those conversations can be quite short conversations just because teams have to get away to the airport and what have you. Um, They're also very valuable in terms of sometimes you exchange a bit of information or, you know, some words and and it's very useful in your career development. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, being such a young coach, you know, you are probably having players who are older than you. I mean, how, how do the players respond to these kind of things? I mean, is it all done on a professional level?
0: Yeah, hundred um, percent. Obviously, as the years have went by, that has changed um, uh, because players naturally are always of a certain age profile. Whereas, you know, unfortunately, we can't stop the hands of time. I'm forever getting slightly older, and um, but with Sierra Leone, you know, I would say the majority of the team were either my age or older than me. You know, it was quite a when I took over Sierra Leone. It was quite a. Uh, aging team you know probably an average age of 29 30 and i was only 27 at the time but i think you have opportunities very early in your tenure to put markers down so your first team meeting your first training session and you know you've got to make sure there's real quality there and that you have the answers when they put questions to you because Because top professionals will put questions to you. They'll want to know why we're doing this. You know, why are we doing A instead of B? And so you've got to have your answers for those. And I think all along the way, you know, planning and preparation is one of the cornerstones of, you know, what any coaching team of mine always put at the forefront of our daily work. And so we make sure that we're not caught, caught short in any of those moments. And then you've got the other moments where, you know, maybe somebody does challenge you you know whether it's through what they say or it might just be through their actions you know if they're late for a meeting you know how do you how do you react in those moments you know are you enforcing the standards that you've laid out to the team or are you letting people away with it and you know for me i've always you know i think i was raised to you know believe in, in doing good work and and Being respectful and having high standards, but then i 've also been raised to hold other people accountable to those standards as well if we 've all agreed what the rule is, then when someone steps outside of those boundaries it 's not just important for me or that individual player it 's important for the entire group that you enforce those those boundaries and yeah there 's been a few moments over the years where that 's happened, but i 'm never you know, I'm not shy in, in enforcing, you know, what is correct and what is right. So I think all the players take note of that and they understand that, yeah, this is serious. And, you know, the coach is somebody who knows what he wants and, and is going to do what it takes to be successful.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, of course, uh, in your career, you also had coach in Asia with uh, Bangladeshi side Saif Kasey. Um, what I mean, what was your experience like with them? Because I heard there were many great times. You had great times with that club.
0: Yeah, it was it was enjoyable. You know, it was a job that offer that came out of the blue. You know, I think um, I heard about it. Someone put the potential to me. I was in London at the time, and it was put to me maybe on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and by Saturday, I was on an airplane to Dhaka. Um, so it was quite a quick turnaround, but as a club, very supportive of what we wanted to do, you know, um, reasonably well financed by a big energy company in Bangladesh. And so the owner, or not the owner, sorry, the, the, the managing director who was responsible for the club, um, he was of the mindset that he wanted to give us everything within reason that we wanted, but then he would expect results. You know, what they didn't want was to say, no, you can't have that. And then for us to turn around afterwards and say, oh, but we could have achieved more if you'd given us what we'd asked for. So in general, as long as it was within reason and as long as it was within budget, uh, the club were very good at saying yes to things we wanted to do, whether that was GPS, whether that was, you know, um, analysis technology, tracking technology you know, whether that was flying to an away game rather than taking many in our bus journey. I think um they were very supportive of what we wanted to do and a very forward-thinking club. And and because of that, we were able to, you know, make really positive strides, you know, on and off the field. And um, you know, I enjoyed my time in Bangladesh and actually it was all, you know, very much set up to to stay. Um, we we started pre-season to go into the new football season back in um, August, September time. But, uh, but the offer from Uganda came in and really, you know, for me, people sort of sometimes ask about, do you prefer international to club football? But for me, it's not one or the other. It's about the opportunity. And for me, the Ugandan position was one that was impossible to turn down, really. But again you know very professional of the club the club understood that as well and they wished me all the best and we're still in contact you know they still ask for player recommendations from me so um mm-hmm. it's uh you know we left on very good terms which was which was nice
1: okay so uh, jonathan you you mentioned something interesting about gps just now so maybe for the layman out there like how I mean, how does this GPS technology been implemented? Is it installed in a certain part of the player's uh, attire or something like that for tracking?
0: Yeah, so um, the most common use of... So GPS, um, for people who don't know, stands for Global Positioning System. So yeah. it's, it's no different really to like when you have your satellite navigation system in your car. You know, it can tell you where you are. And and so the GPS system is a small device, maybe, I don't know, about a quarter the size of your iPhone that, um, that sort of usually gets worn in a vest. You wear like a vest that looks a little bit like a female sports bra.
1: I see. Okay.
0: Yeah. It gets, it gets worn underneath, um, your, your match shirt or your training shirt usually and Mm -hmm. the GPS pod. And there's usually a heart rate monitor that's attached to it as well and basically what it does is it tracks all the movement of the players it tracks their heart rate it tracks you know there's something like there's like about a hundred or more metrics that it tracks you know it'll be you know how many times you sprint you know how many times you run at you know peak velocity and there's lots and lots of things at puddles. And, and what it allows us to do is not only track movements, but actually the heart rate is a really important one. Because fitness is a very personal metric. You know, um, uh, my 90% of my heart rate might be higher or lower than 90% of your heart rate. And so even if we are doing the same work and training, I might be getting less benefit out of it than you are because actually for me to get the same benefit, I need to do more work um, mm-hmm. because the way your body works is very personal to you. And so linking all of this data together with the heart rate of the players um, is really valuable, especially the stuff we get from matches is interesting, but I think the real value in the systems is the day-to-day training because you know, we, we're able to track it live from the side of the pitch. We usually have a guy, you know, one of our staff will be sat with a laptop on the side of the training pitch and he'll be able to say to me, oh coach, you know, this player, his heart rate isn't high enough, he needs to work harder. And so I can shout onto that player and say, look, we need a little bit more from you. Or I might see that another player has done a remarkably large amount of work in that given day And so maybe towards the end of training, I tell him to stop and go and stretch out 10 or 15 minutes earlier than everybody else. Mm. So it's about tailoring training to the individual so that they get exactly what they personally need to be in the best condition when it comes to match day.
1: Okay, very interesting. So, uh, Jonathan, now let's talk about your current job with the Uganda national team. You know? So, you, you were running alongside 137 other application, applicants, you know. So, maybe you want to tell us more about this and how do you manage to secure this job?
3: Um,
0: I think it's twofold. Uh, you've got to remember, a few years ago, I was the head coach of Rwanda, which is right next door. Um, So us in uh, Uganda and Rwanda would be historical rivals. Mm -hmm. And so it's a bit like England v. Scotland or, I don't know, India v. Pakistan or, you know, any of these really sort of just historical relationships that go beyond the football pitch. And so we obviously, I was working in Rwanda for a couple of years and we did quite well. You know, we set some new milestones for the Rwandan national team. And we also came up against Uganda a couple of times. And, and whilst on both of those occasions, Uganda came out on, on top, they were very close-run things. And we really did push them to their limit, both here and in uh, Kigali. And so I think maybe that stayed with them because it wasn't just somebody applying. It was someone who they'd come up against my team before. So they knew what a Jonathan McKinstry team played like, what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I think part of it was well, Uganda historically would have would have more talent than Uga- than rwanda it's you know Uganda's a much bigger country, probably has a better history in the game, and so part of it was probably well if if he 's able to do this type of job with Rwanda, we will be able to give him more talent to work with so he can do even more here in Uganda. so I think that 's part of it. Um, okay. I think another part of it is that my the way I see the game and the way I want my teams to play lines up very well with the bigger picture that the, the Ugandan Federation, FUFA, has for the game here. You know, I look at when I came in and I do some work with the youth development department and they put together, um, they have their youth development documents and a lot of the key principles that they're looking to inst- their young players I'd say 90% of them line up really well with what I look for my teams to do at senior level. And so there's a real synergy there. And so I think the chief executive and the executive committee here looked at what I was presenting to them and could see the alignment between that and their long-term vision for football in Uganda. And and yeah, so it was it was those two things. I think one was just... My positive work in the in the area and the region historically, and then also the alignment of my vision of football to uganda's vision of football
3: of course, I mean, and of course, speaking of uh, rivalry, as you just mentioned, I mean um, was it any difficult or challenge to take over the job like in in a sense of how what happened in, in Ukraine recently with Misha Luescu? When he took over Dinamo Kiev, there was a protest from Dinamo fans because of his allegiance in the past with Shakhtar Donetsk. I mean, was there that sort of rivalry that exists in African football?
0: No, not really. Um, it does exist, don't get me wrong. But in my case, I think it also helps that Uganda have previously um, had a coach who was formerly the Rwanda coach. So, mm-hmm. uh, Micho Um, who qualified uh, Uganda to their first African Cup of Nations in 40 years back in 2017, who's actually a good friend of mine as well. Um, He had previously coached the Rwandan team. Um, And so I think they looked at it that, you know, here's a coach who'd previously been with the Rwandan team who came to Uganda and was very successful. And actually, if you look, comparing my own record to his in Rwanda, you know, we probably had a better period and whilst I was with the Rwandan team. So, you know, I think part of it, you know, they'd already had that movement of a coach across the border. So, yeah, it, it was never really an issue.
3: Mm-hmm. And what was your immediate goal when you took over the Uganda national team? I mean, do you have any sorts of targets, say, qualification for the African Cup of Nations or, you know, maybe in the long term of the World Cup?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, again, it's very refreshing here. FUFA, the football federation are, you know, very well organized. You know, we've got 70 full-time members of staff at the football association. We're one of the largest associations in Africa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our leadership is, is very, you know, progressive. And so when I came in, you know, it was look, we want to improve. It was like, Last time out, we got to the last 16 of the African Cup of Nations. You know, in 2017, they qualified and got knocked out in the group stages. In 2019, they qualified and progressed from the group stages to the last 16. And so it was look, we would like to improve. But also there was a little bit, you know, we need to transition the team because there was a number of players who maybe played at both of those Cup of Nations who now are getting a little bit older. And so we need to usher in, you know, some of the emerging talent needs to be incorporated into the senior national team. So can we successfully do that whilst maintaining or progressing our performance at continental level? And then beyond that, again, last time out in qualifying for the 2018 World Cup in Russia, you know, Uganda finished second in their qualifying group behind Egypt but ahead of Ghana and Congo so and even beating Egypt here in Kampala so it was a very positive world cup qualifying campaign and again you know the federation here have set the medium term target of qualifying for the 2026 world cup in the usa mexico and canada but for us we looked at it and said well we've we finished second last time out you know, we fail, we'll have to see what the draw brings up. This is when I took the job, um, what the draw brings up. And then can we take a step forward and finish top of our qualifying group? Now, in Africa, after the qualifying groups, you still have the playoff round. So winning your qualifying group doesn't book your ticket to the World Cup, but it gets you to that final playoff round. So, you know, and we've been drawn in a group with our, our, our neighbors, Kenya and Rwanda, and also Mali, who are a very exciting young team, but they are young. And so, you know, for us, we see it as a group with lots of potential. So, you know, we believe we can go back to the African Cup of Nations. Um, we believe that with good performances, we could top our World Cup qualifying group over the next 18 months. And, and yeah, if, if we do those things, it will be solid progress, um, both on and off the field.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, like, uh, like most African nations, you know, the Ugandan players ply their trade throughout the world and looking at your current squad, you know, you have players in the UK, playing in the UK, US, Sweden and Saudi Arabia to name a few. So, how do you keep in touch with them and uh, do you speak to them constantly?
0: Yeah, I, I think one of the, the big things in international football is communication. I think any, in any business, in any walk of life, communication is so important. But when you, uh, when you don't have your players on the training field every day, how you maintain communication and build rapport and relationships yep. is really important. And there's no doubt about it that, look, if we were sitting 20 years ago, it would be so much more difficult than it is nowadays because now you have so many mediums, Whether it's, you know, social media apps, whether it's things like this, like zoom, like WhatsApp, you know, we even have an online platform for the players, like a private platform where all the players can log on and we upload like little tactical scenarios and we have discussions and, you know, I'll maybe do like live sort of tactical webcasts sometimes for them, just little short things so that we're still touching in with them whilst they're at their club environment. So I think things are made a lot easier um, with modern technology. And naturally, there's so many scouting platforms as well. So, you know, like things like Instat, Scout. Basically, every Monday and Tuesday, my days are made up with watching all of these games from Saudi Arabia, from Kazakhstan, from Israel, USA. You know, I get to see a lot of football because every league around the world is covered. You know, you can get full 90-minute videos from every game in every country now, basically. And and so that makes it easier to keep track of the players and, and just keep up to date with all of them and how they're doing.
2: Hmm, okay coming back to asian football uh with having experience managing uh Bangladesh's side site safe case uh what is actually your view on asian football and uh, maybe in the future would you like to return back to this part of the world
0: uh, yes is the answer um, you know i would love to come back to asia at some point um to work uh, for me it's you know football's a crazy industry you you never it's like a river it sort of meanders off it can bend left and right and you know it, it can change direction suddenly and it, it's it's not a straight highway you know a football career especially in coaching is not a highway it's more of that meandering river so you're never really sure exactly where the next step is going to take you. You just hope that it's in a positive direction and an upwards trajectory. For me, you know, ever since I was very young, I've been sort of really enthralled by Asian football. Um, Growing up in the UK, I remember uh, there wasn't a lot of live games on the TV. In the early days of the Premier League and Sky Sports, yes, you had some games, And then, you know, domestic TV had an Italian football highlight show. But then in the early days of Sky Sports, they also had the J-League review, which was a weekly review of of Japanese football. And I remember as, you know, a 10-year-old, whatever it was, 10, 11, 12, you know, every weekend making sure I never watched the J-League review. You know, and, and I think I told you earlier, you know, growing up, I was, you know, just crazy about the game. I loved it. and You know, there probably wasn't many 12 year olds in Ireland, you know, watching Japanese football, um, you know, every weekend. So for me, but I, I just the technical level, I was always really taken aback by the technique, and, you know, the team cohesion. Of, Asia, of Japanese football then, and then that obviously grew as I became aware and got to watch of Asian football more widely. Um, after I left Sierra Leone, I actually spent a couple of months in Southeast Asia um, just, again, watching matches, training sessions, meeting coaches in places like Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia. I actually came down to Malaysia um, for a week and um, – uh, went and sort of watched uh, um, a couple of games and, and met some club officials. And so um, I actually flew over um, Zesh Rahman, who obviously was a very successful player in, in Malaysia um, yep. for a number of years. I went and sort of met up with him. Um, and um, I was at Pahang he played for.
3: Yeah, he played um, for Pahang. So
0: uh, yeah, so went over, I flew over to Pahang. meet with him and sort of see around over there so yeah for me asian football yeah i really do enjoy it and I, i was really pleased to be able to go and and work in bangladesh and look it's a bit like africa people people from the outside see africa as one place that's all the same and that's just not true that's like saying england is the same as romania You know, they're very different in the same way that, you know, Sierra Leone is hugely different from Uganda. And it's the same in Asia. You know, you look at the different component parts of the Asian continent and there's such a huge range in culture and and just, you know, the environment, the weather. And so, you know, definitely if the opportunity presented itself in the future and the timing was right to go back to Asia, I think it would definitely be something I would enjoy doing.
3: Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, we, we would love to have your expertise in this part of the world as well. Now, um, I mean, coaching to, in today's football, I mean, it presents a wide variety of challenges. I mean, it's not just anymore about talking about tactical, technicals and stuff on the field, but there's also issues related off the field as well, especially with regards to mental health. I mean, how do you manage footballers who, who you believe could have potential mental or emotional health issues?
0: Um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, these are, these are areas that we need to be aware of. And there are areas we need to do better in. You know, I think I said earlier that, you know, no training course, you know, we do all our coaching licenses, whether it's with the AFC or UEF or CAF. But these don't necessarily prepare you to be a head coach or a manager. You know, there's things that you have to learn and improve on. And, and it's the same with areas like mental health, that it's hard to really, until you, there are trainings, you can go and do no doubt. But I think a big part of it, again, is communication. You know, how do you communicate with people? Um, have, when I first got here in Uganda... Um, one of the first things I did was I called all of our players, all of the guys playing abroad. I had a 10 to 15 minute phone call with them over the first two days I was in office. And I then anyone who was playing in Uganda, I went and met personally. And um, one of the things was I wanted feedback for them on what they felt was good, what they felt could be better. And one of the things I got told by some coaches and some officials was, Oh, you know the players here are very good at listening and they'll try to implement what you're asking but they're very poor at giving feedback now when i hear that i my first question is well are they poor at giving feedback or are we bad at asking for feedback because if you want people to be open and honest with you you have to create an environment where they trust that it's going to be taken in a fair and genuine manner. So that if they tell you something in confidence, it will remain private. If they tell you something that you don't like, but you will take it professionally as their opinion or their viewpoint. And and so I think we need to, first of all, create a safe environment where players, and not just players, anyone associated with the organization feels safe in, in airing their views and and telling you what they need to tell you. And I think if we develop that that culture within our organizations and with our, our teams, then we can start, you know, tackling issues such as mental or emotional health issues. Because, you know, everyone says everyone says one of the most important things with these issues is that people need to to talk. You know, they need to, you know, have a conversation with someone if they're struggling. But if you don't feel as though you're in a safe environment, and that people will listen to you, it's very difficult to have those conversations. So for me, you know, building relationships, building rapport, being authentic, uh, and being genuine with people, and trying to help people, you know, I, I feel, you know, I've been here just under a year now, and I feel very privileged that a number of players, you know, feel comfortable. You know, asking to go for a coffee or ringing me up and saying, look, coach, I've got this challenge in my life. It might be a professional one. It might be a personal one. We had a player who, unfortunately, you know, one of their parents passed away not so long ago. And, you know, he called me the day after that happened and we had a conversation about it. And so, you know, I feel very privileged that players, you know, have when when they're in those difficult moments, that they feel like I'm somebody that they can talk to about that. And, you know, and I'm more than happy to do that because, you know, everybody, you know, everybody struggles. And if we can help people through those challenging moments, then I think, you know, I think we all do better because of it. And and ultimately, if we can do better on that side of it, I think it has an impact how we perform on the field. I I think it can help us be successful on the field as well.
2: Hmm. Uh, with the most, with the, with the experience we have, and I'm sure we travel around the world, especially in the part of Africa, uh, what is the most memorable moment as a coach? And perhaps you guys, uh, just give us a viewers as, why it is special for you?
0: Do you know, for me, like I've been very fortunate, you know, I've had a lot of standout moments, you know, when, whether it's individual games, or you know players, you know just stepping up to the mark and, and showing they've got the level of performance in them that you always believed they had in them. So I, I think you know there's been so many moments like that, or when your backs against the wall mm. and you come up with a big performance. But I actually think you know for me, you know. I, Look, I said very early on, you know, my passion in life, yes, football is a huge passion of mine and is my life's sort of work, but the the thing about it that drives me the most is seeing people make the most of their potential. You know, Mm -hmm. they have this potential that you can see in them, and when they realize that potential and sort of step out of the shadows into that spotlight, you know, that's what really gets me. That's like, you know, I'm their biggest cheerleader when they do that. And we had a couple of young lads who, you know, played for me in my academy in Sierra Leone. You know, we scouted them when they were like 12 years old. And then a few years later, actually, before I became head coach of the national team, they, um, I got asked to be like the you. 17 u20 to help with the junior national teams and i actually turned it down because i felt it would be a conflict of interests and um, with me also running a football academy for those age categories but what then went on was a couple of these boys you know went on to be selected and to represent their country in a u20 world cup qualifier and you know these are boys who at the time were only 17 years of age 16 17 they had been with us since they were 12 you know, they'd worked hard on the field, in the classroom. You know, they were humble guys, kids, and, and this was them, you know, representing their country. And so, for me, moments, getting a yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that, you know, you've sort of tried to guide them and tried to sort of point them in the right direction, but ultimately you can't walk that journey for them. They've got to do it themselves, no matter how much you want to, you know, drive them forward, they've got to do it themselves. So when you see a young man like that, and now one of them's actually playing professionally out in the USA um, and the other one's back in Egypt. And, um, you know, but to see that moment where the two of them pulled on that Sierra Leone shirt and, you know, just made a dream, you know, a personal dream of theirs and their families come true. Moments like that really stand out to me, and they're ones that, you know, if ever sometimes the business of football isn't a nice business, you know, there's the game's a beautiful game, but sometimes the business side of football's not nice, but it's moments like that that you you remember and go, look, this is why we're involved in the game for moments like that.
1: All right. So, you know, uh, Jonathan, and uh, finally, you know, whom do you draw your inspiration, you know, from as a mentor in terms of coaching? Is there any particular coach that has meant a lot to you?
0: Um, you know, I've been, it's it's been interesting in my career, you know, I've not had the fortune to work under a lot of coaches, you know, I think Like, if you just look at my career, I became an academy manager at, what, 24 years old. So I was in charge of the academy. I then became a head coach in the pro game at 27 years old. So, you know, unlike, you look at someone like Mikel Arteta, who, you know, got a great schooling of working under Pep Guardiola for three years. You know, I've never really had that type of experience. Um, However, you know, I have, you know, I'm always hungry for knowledge and I read a lot and I listen a lot and, you know, I try to go to conferences and seminars as much as I can. And, you know, Mm -hmm. actually, I draw a lot of experience or a lot of sort of guidance, if you would, from a lot of American coaches, actually. You know, and whether it's in basketball or American football, you know, at the moment I'm actually reading Tom Caulfield's book, who's the former New York Giants American football coach.
2: Mm-hmm. And, yep. um,
0: but one of but one of my sort of great ones has always been John Wooden, um, sort of the now you know last few years passed away uh, UCLA basketball coach. Um, and here's a guy who you know was very much look. Don't if you if you train basketball players, you're only going to get a certain level. But if you teach people, if you treat them as people and you support them as, as the whole person and you have high standards and you try to educate these young men, then you know anything can happen. And, and so for me, you know, guys like John Wooden, as I said, I'm reading Tom Caulfield's book now. But then also, you know growing up I was a huge fan of Brian Clough you know I was a huge yep. fan of Brian Clough now now I think I think Brian Clough and I are quite different you know <laughs> I, I know some people I've, I've, done so, I've done I've done some I've done some coaching qualifications with people who played for for Brian Clough and uh-huh. so I've heard a number of the stories of how you know he was and and I think um you know, so I think we probably are very different in our approach. But what I always loved about Brian Clough was his directness
2: mm-hmm. and
0: also his ability to make things unpredictable. You know, that he would do something that would keep the players on their toes and, you know, made sure that the players never got too comfortable, that mm-hmm. they were always ready for the unexpected. And I think little things like that, you know, can be so valuable in the game because look, if, if, you, if you live your entire life in a bubble and you only get the same thing every day, yeah, you'll do fine as long as those conditions are met. But if all of a sudden something changes and you can't have everything the way you want it, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got no experience of that, you're going to struggle. And so I think you know, what Brian Clough was fantastic at was making sure that players really were ready for anything um, that was thrown at them, and you know, he got huge success. At, at you know, it, it's unparalleled, really. Like, I, I know people talk about obviously, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson won two European Cups as well, but by that stage, Manchester United, you know, he built them into a huge entity. And yeah. historically, Manchester United were a huge entity, but Nottingham Forest, and then even you know, he almost did it with Derby County, yeah,
1: that you know, prior the, to yeah.
0: that, and, and so. You know, when you look at taking these teams who before that really hadn't done anything and mm-hmm. since that have really not done anything, so you know, I think that deserves huge respect.
3: Mm, yeah, truly indeed. Uh, I mean, I, I did saw a little bit of Arsene Winger in yourself, especially in how you coach and help players. I mean, is it fair to say mm. that way?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think probably I've never met Arsene, um, but from the outside looking in i think um he is probably more tied to a singular vision of the game than i am in terms of a footballing philosophy i think for me i'm a bit more pragmatic you know i have a way i want to play the game but i also appreciate that you know i have to take the environmental factors into account you know quite significantly um otherwise you might always be playing a losing game. Whereas I think in the case of Arsenal, and, you know, I went and watched, when I was living in London, I went and watched a number of Arsenal games under Wenger. And, you know, really, you know, adhered to that playing philosophy, no questions asked. And some, so I don't think I'm as tied to a singular playing philosophy. I have my idea of the game, but I also know, you know, I can move 15 or 20% from it in order to get the success that we need to get.
3: hmm okay. And of course, you know, talking about the current situation of COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, how has that affected your job at the moment right now?
0: Yeah, I think um, it's obviously going on a while now. You know, we've, we're a few months into all of this. And um, in the initial phase, being an international coach, you get into a rhythm of managing your own time because you're not always on the field with the players so you you sort of know how to manage your time off the field maybe a bit more effectively than a club coach would be used to and so in that sense the adjustment to being in the office more was um, was a little bit smoother I think in the first couple of months it's, it's funny because we had a lot of Um, objectives for sort of the next 12 to 18 months in terms of putting a lot of things in place in the background, in terms of, you know, presentations, in terms of video slides, in terms of moving graphics, you know, all the way from our game model to even position specific so that we can say, you know, if a new player comes into our team, we can say, okay, what position is he? Right. Give him those, slides give him those videos so that he's really understanding what's expected of him in terms of our playing model and so we expect that that might take a while because you're doing a lot of other things at the same time. But because of, you know, us being in the office more now, we've got that all complete. You know, that took about, you know, five weeks, you know, solid work without disruptions. And we got it all completed. And we then moved on again, like I've already touched on, to set up our online platform, which was something we felt was important long-term anyway, because, you know, the players are with their clubs a lot of the year. So how do we maybe do some tactical work from a theoretical point of view. And we've managed to launch that online platform. So that's been really good. And and we've also set up some deals. You know, we've been, you know, I've been in discussions with, you know, analytics companies who were very close to, you know, signing off a big deal for Ugandan Football On. We've been talking to kit manufacturers. And so we've actually got a lot done. We've got a huge amount done that actually I think for the long-term health and progress of Ugandan football is going to be really beneficial. So, you know, it's not the way we wanted it to be done. There's no doubt about that. You know, we were supposed to be playing in the African Championship Tournament in April, which is like the B-level tournament in Africa. We were getting ready for it, and it was postponed. So there's a lot of frustration with that. But, um, no, we've used the time wisely. And so I think going forward... We're gonna be more prepared with all the off-field stuff than we could ever have hoped to have been without this time to focus on it.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, guys, uh, any, any any other questions?
2: Uh, basically, I was uh, thank you for being part of the show, Mr. Jonathan, and I hope we have a successful uh, what journey with the Uganda, and hopefully see you in the World Cup. In yeah. 2022.
0: Yeah, good luck in your journey.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, no, Jonathan, for, for, for joining our podcast today.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Thank you very much, guys. And yeah, it's, it's a joy sort of to uh, have a chat with you guys. You know, I think it's great. Modern technology allows us to, you know, engage in, in ways like this that maybe five, 10 years ago wouldn't have been possible. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think bringing yeah. the football world closer together, you know, is, is only a good thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, true, truly what you said I mean, uh, if it wasn't for technology We couldn't even have this uh, podcast So you're, you're absolutely right about that And uh, yeah. of course, you know uh, Thank you as well for being a part of our podcast uh, Of course, we wish you all the best in your journey uh, Whether it's Uganda and beyond um, Who knows, one day Maybe one day uh, we might hear your name Coaching somewhere in Malaysia You never know
0: you never know i think for me yeah. people well people always say to me you know to be honest the country in term, it's always about the opportunity you know so when people I, I very rarely look at the map anymore you know it's like it doesn't really matter if it's north south east or west it's about is it is it a great opportunity to go and not just be successful but have an impact you know can does it line up with my skill set you know, and if I can have a positive impact, then yeah, you, you never know where, where this football life can take you.
3: Mm-hmm. True, true. Okay, so with that said and done, we will end this episode of the podcast. So goodbye for now.